Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Every time somebody says you're disenfranchising the Black community, the state can come in and say, no, 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 we're just disenfranchising people who vote Democratic. If that's a defense, then it makes it very hard to win any case on behalf of the minority community. The Supreme Court that you and I and the nation have known since the 1950s is over forever. Okay, it is gone. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. Uh, Here with me again is Ian Milheiser. We are introducing, this is going to be the final episode of the By the People series. Uh, So it's big. Uh, You're not going to want to miss this one. What's What's it all about? So I guess a persistent villain in this series has been the Supreme Court. Um, The Supreme Court's done a lot to dismantle voting rights and sadly with a six to three Republican majority is likely to do a lot more to dismantle voting rights. And so this episode is going to focus on that. The first half is going to focus on what the Supreme Court has done in the past and what it's likely to do in the future to our democracy. And then the second half focuses on some potentially radical solutions like court packing, which could be used to... uh, prevent the Supreme Court from uh, dismantling our free and fair elections. And so who, who, who are the guests? What, what, who, who are we going to be learning from? So the first half is Pam Carlin, who is one of my favorite lawyers and constitutional scholars. It's really just always a treat to get to talk to Pam. And then the second half, I talk with uh, Mark Joseph Stern, who covers the Supreme Court for Slate. And so we've been working together on the same beat for a really long time now. OK, cool. I mean, this is a you know, it's a it's a sort of alarming episode because we're we're getting into into some pretty extreme uh, solutions at the end. But, you know, you keep hearing about this, right? It's been in both of the debates that I've seen so far. So it's really in everyone's interest to inform themselves uh, about this issue and, and how it works, because I think it's it's going to be big in the politics to come. So Enjoy. So as I said to Matt, my first guest is Pam Carlin, and she's someone that I've admired for a very long time. 
Pam's a law professor at Stanford. She led up a lot of the Obama administration's voting rights litigation. And she's really one of the nation's preeminent civil rights lawyers. Among other things, she argued and won the Bostock case in front of the Supreme Court, which said that it's illegal for employers to discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation. So Pam's a big deal. I'm, I'm thrilled I was able to get some of her time. Some of this conversation actually allayed some of my fears. We talked some about some things that the Supreme Court is probably not going to do to harm voting rights. But one thing that is deeply alarming about this conversation is we also talk about how the Voting Rights Act is very much in danger. And the Voting Rights Act is our primary shield against race discrimination in voting. So this is a very measured and a very wide-ranging conversation. And like I said, the parts that she says about the Voting Rights Act really are deeply troubling for the future of American democracy. So with that, let's go to Pam. Pam Carlin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So I want to start with a comment that President Trump made recently about why it's so important to confirm someone to replace Justice Ginsburg so quickly. He said that I think this will end up in the Supreme Court and the this he was referring to is the election. And I think that it's very important that we have nine justices. So that's about as close to saying that he's counting on the Supreme Court to flip the election for him as, you know, someone can can be. Can you just tell me before we get into the details of like what happens if the Supreme Court actually intervenes in the election, what would the mechanics of an election challenge look like? How does a case get to the Supreme Court and what sort of issues might arise where the Supreme Court could wind up deciding an election? So there are a number of routes for a case getting to the Supreme Court. The most likely route is that there is a disagreement over who is entitled to a particular state or a group of different states' electors. So in 2000, for example, there was a dispute over who had won Florida's electoral votes and whoever won those votes was going to become president. Right. A second way a case could get to the Supreme Court is if in a state, right now every state selects its electors by having a popular election. But you could imagine a state trying to claim that the election has failed and then federal law Three United States Code Section 2 says if a state has failed to make a choice of electors, then the electors should be appointed by the state in the manner that the state legislature directs. And there might be an argument in some state, either because the election is just a shambles or there's a natural disaster or there's a man-made disaster, that their election has failed. And then the state legislature might purport to have the authority to appoint electors, and there might be a lawsuit over that. And that kind of lawsuit could clearly go to the Supreme Court because it's about the interpretation of federal law. It's about the interpretation of three United States Code, which has the provisions in it that govern how the Electoral Count Act works. I want to throw out a slightly different scenario than the Bush v. Gore situation. So what we had in Bush v. Gore was there's this one singular lawsuit that we all sort of know that the election was going to turn on whatever the Supreme Court said in that decision. But you can imagine a situation, and again, this is just a hypothetical, but imagine that you have a district judge in in Nevada that orders a bunch of ballots thrown out. You have a district judge in Pennsylvania that orders some ballot drop boxes is shut down. You have a bunch of different court decisions, maybe a dozen different court decisions that all take little cuts 
at the voters' ability to cast their ballots. And maybe some of these cases go to the Supreme Court. Maybe some of them are decided by emboldened lower court judges who feel like they can get away with being aggressive because of how conservative the Supreme Court is. If we have this sort of death by a thousand cuts scenario, how will we know whether these many court decisions have changed the result of the presidential election? Oh, that's a tough question because so much of it depends on how close the election is uh, in the states that matter. So, for mm-hmm. example, it, you know, it's hard to imagine any decision any judge could make that would change the result in California or New York or Mississippi, for that right. matter. Um, so, it has to be a series of different things going on. One is the election has to be close in terms of the electoral vote nationwide. Uh, the second is that the vote has to be close in in some of the battleground states. Um, and you know we'll start to know that in some sense, not due to the 250 or however many lawsuits are going on right now, but once the election returns start to come in. Because if the election returns are coming in in a way that's decisive for one candidate or the other, uh, then the Supreme Court really can't do very much. They could decide a bunch of cases, but the cases won't change the outcome of the election. Let's pivot to the past now, because even before Justice Ginsburg's death, we had a very conservative court when it came to voting rights. And so first, let's talk a little bit about the Voting Rights Act. Sure. How much of the Voting Rights Act is left um, after, you know, a series of Supreme Court decisions weakening it. So there were two major provisions of the Voting Rights Act that got litigated a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them was Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. That was the special preclearance provisions. Uh, those provisions applied to jurisdictions that had had a history of both low participation and the use of devices, particularly the literacy test, that tended to suppress the vote. And that statute was incredibly important in the places where it applied because it said you can't make any change to your voting law and put it into effect until you've proven to the federal government that the law has neither a discriminatory purpose nor what was called a retrogressive effect. That is, it didn't roll back the progress that African-American or Latino or Native American or Asian-American voters had, had made. The Supreme Court got rid of that provision effectively in its 2013 decision in the Shelby County case. And as a result, you know, within literally hours after the Supreme Court uh, got rid of Section 5, states like Texas and North Carolina and Alabama started to move forward on vote suppression, on ID laws, on cutbacks to early voting and the like. So that law is gone. The other provision of the Voting Rights Act that has that has always applied nationwide and that's a very important provision is Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. And it is extremely important because it says that a state or local government can't use any voting practice or procedure that has the result of minimizing the uh, opportunity of minority citizens to elect candidates of their choice and to participate in the election. The Supreme Court has taken a narrow view of Section 2 in a number of cases, but Section 2 is still a very vital statute and is used all the time uh, to sue state and local governments. And a lot of the cases 
that have been really important. There are cases where the Supreme Court either decided not to take the case or the case never reached them. How confident are you, though, that the Voting Rights Act or that Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act will remain vibrant? Oh, I'm not confident. And the reason I'm not confident is there are at least some justices on the current Supreme Mm -hmm. Court. And I'm not even sure it's all four of the more conservative justices, but some of the justices on the Supreme Court think that having what's called a disparate impact standard, that is a standard that says something's illegal regardless of why you did it, as long as the result of your doing it is to have a disparate impact on minority citizens. You know, Justice Scalia was a big proponent of the view that disparate impact standards might themselves violate the Constitution because they take race into account or they take sex into account or the like. So if disparate impact is on the chopping block, then that really guts the Voting Rights Act. And so what does that mean then for our elections? I I mean, one thing that we have seen in recent years is that the Republican Party knows it can use race as a proxy to identify partisans, you know, because African-Americans are so likely to vote for Democrats. If it packs them all into a gerrymandered district, or if it enacts some law that makes it hard for African-Americans to vote, they can be pretty confident that they are disenfranchising Democratic voters. And so if the Voting Rights Act doesn't stand in early, it doesn't stand with any vibrancy, you know, do we have free and fair elections in this country? Well, there's a risk that we don't. And the reason there's a risk is because, as you know, the Supreme Court uh, held two years ago in the Rucho case that political gerrymandering is not unconstitutional. Right. And if what you say is, well, purposeful racial gerrymandering is still unconstitutional, and that would be true under the 14th Amendment, and nobody nobody argues otherwise. But every time somebody says, you're disenfranchising the Black community, the state can come in and say, no, 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 we're just disenfranchising people who vote Democratic. If that's a defense, then it makes it very hard to win any case on behalf of the minority community. So I want to hone in on the conservative justices on the Supreme Court. Ultimately, it's the Supreme Court that's going to decide, you know, how much voter suppression is allowed. And I guess what my question is, is do you see any kind of limiting principle in the conservative justices opinions? Like, is is it just that we disagree with them about where the line is, but they're willing to draw a line? Or are they really willing to go so far as to say, just as long as you proclaim that this is about politics, it's fine? Well, I don't think they're willing to say just as long as you proclaim it's about politics, Mm -hmm. it's fine. But the question of when do you see a discriminatory purpose, which is the question under the Constitution, when do you see a racially discriminatory purpose? Different justices are differentially likely to see that, in part because if you think that we, we got rid of racial discrimination, which was in part the kind of underlying theme of the Shelby County case was, we don't really see massive racial discrimination anymore in voting in the South. If that's your starting point, if that's your worldview, you're far less likely to think in any given case that race played an impermissible role. If on the other hand, you think race is still a very salient issue, then you're much more likely to think that race played a role in a particular case. So you know, it's about it's about worldview. It's not about the basic principle that you can't discriminate on the basis of race. It's not, it's about whether you think that principle has been violated 
in a particular case. The other thing just to say, though, is this isn't just about race. It's also about how fundamental do you think the right to vote is and how likely are you to allow a state to come in and say, well, this particular restriction is necessary in order to run an election system. So let me give you one that I think nobody really disagrees with, which is, of course, we have to have an election day. And if a state decides to hold, uh, to require everybody to vote on election day, either absentee or in person, but on election day, rather than having early voting, a state isn't required by the constitution or by federal law to allow early voting. It's just not. Right. And why do we have an election day rather than saying, you know, election month or the like? Well, because it focuses people's attention. You have to hire people to run the election system and the like. It's a reasonable regulation. But the question of when does the restriction impinge on the fundamental right to vote is something where the Rehnquist Court and then the Roberts Court have cut back on what the Warren Court and the Berger Court said about restrictions, which is the Warren Court and the Berger Court really said the state, you know, we, we should be skeptical of restrictions on the right to vote. And the current court is not skeptical of those restrictions at all, in part because of a worldview that comes out of, you know, the post 2000 election period where the Democratic Party believes, and I think correctly, that the greater the number of citizens who show up at the polls, the more likely Democratic candidates are to do well. The Republican Party, and President Trump was quite candid about this, thinks that really the fewer the citizens who show up to vote, the more likely its candidates are to succeed. On top of that, you have the Democrats then being concerned that vote suppression will drive down their supporters' ability to vote. And the Republicans have become obsessed with with really no empirical evidence to support them at all, that the real danger to American democracy is not that too few people will vote, but that too many will, that fraud will somehow occur. Right. No, there's almost no evidence of of voter fraud in this country. No, and none of the fraud, absolutely none of it. I mean, you know, 0% involves people pretending to be somebody else to go to the polls, which is what the draconian voter ID laws are all about. So Justice Scalia in particular used to push back really hard when people accused his court of being a partisan body or like when people referred to justices as Democrats or Republicans. And he would say, no, 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 no. This is about judicial philosophy or ideology or something else. I I mean, I often refer to the judges on this or to justices on the Supreme Court as Republican justices, because I think that that's clarifying for my readers and for my listeners to understand that, like, these are judges who are doing things that advance a particular party's agenda. Am I wrong to do that? I mean, I mean, is, is it wrong to conceptualize these judges as partisan actors? And for that matter, does the distinction really matter if they're reaching the same the same results anyway? Well, I think it's that last point that you make. That is, I don't think that there are justices on the Supreme Court who get up in the morning and think, what should I do for the Republican Party? Or what should I do for the Democratic Party? Because their self-conception really is, we are above politics. The problem is, in a country that's as polarized as ours, people's worldviews align with the, the party that appointed them. And it doesn't have to be conscious. It's not conscious and it's not unwitting. That is, it's not that they think they're being fair, but in reality, they're not. It's that 
the two parties right now have fundamentally different views about democratic participation and fundamentally different views about uh, democracy. And those views naturally affect how the justices think about these issues. One person, one vote is the notion that you can't have one state legislative district that has a million people in it and another that has maybe 100,000 people in it. I mean, are arguments like that, like, I mean, let me ask the question specifically, is one person, one vote, vote potentially threatened in a court with a six to three Republican majority? So I think the basic principle of one person, one vote is not threatened, but the way it gets applied is. So let me explain the difference there. Um, In Rucho itself, the Supreme Court reaffirmed, in essence, that the court had done the right thing in the 1960s reapportionment cases. Mm -hmm. So I think there is no question that states will have to draw new districts after every census because the census will reveal that there have been population shifts. Here's the example, though, of where the right wing of the Republican Party and current law diverge. One person, one vote is shorthand for the idea that you can't have districts in them with dramatically different numbers of people. But one thing that the Republican Party has tried to do, um, and the president's been pretty clear about this, and the president's lawyer, Will Consovoy, was actually the lawyer who litigated this issue up to the Supreme Court a couple of years back in the Evanwell against Abbott case. One question is, When you say we have to have equal numbers of people in each district, what kind of people are we talking about? So the current rule is that the districts have to have the same number of inhabitants in them. And that counts children. It counts uh, people who are non-citizens. It counts people who are undocumented, but who are living in the United States. What would happen if instead of equalizing those numbers of people in each district, you equalize the numbers of citizens of voting age in each district, that is, American citizens over the age of 18, you would dramatically shift how the districts are drawn. Because in parts of the country where there is a heavily Latino population in particular, you would have to have many more people in those districts than in districts nearby. And I'll just give you an old example of this that illustrates just how much we're talking about here. Los Angeles County uh, elects a board of supervisors, and they have five supervisors on the board. And in the 1990s, if you drew the districts to have absolutely equal numbers of people in them, they each district would have somewhat north of 1 million people. In it. They're really huge districts. If, on the other hand, you try to equalize the number of citizens of voting age in each of those districts, the most heavily Latino district would have tw- almost twice as many people in it as the most Anglo district just because of things like the age distribution of the Latino population, much higher percentage of Latinos are under the age of 18, and because of the citizenship. And what that would do is it would transfer power away from the party that most Latinos support, because you'd have many fewer majority Latino districts, and towards the party supported by Anglos. So so I'm going to do something off brand here and ask you for some good news. Yeah. What do you think is safe? And I know that this is a large question, but can you give examples of big voting rights fights where you think that even in a six to three Republican court, the justices are going to say, you you know what, like that is settled and we're not going to touch that? I think one person, one vote is pretty settled. Mm -hmm. I think the prohibition in the Constitution on intentionally diluting 
the voting strength of minority communities is settled. I think the constitutionality of the Voting Rights Act's ban on literacy tests is settled. So those are those are big issues. Mm-hmm. I think that there are, you know, a huge number of changes that states are making to their own law, which as a matter of federalism, the Supreme Court is not going to touch. So the states that have dramatically increased people's ability to vote early or to vote by mail, I don't think the Supreme Court is going to hold. They lack that power. I mean, there are crazy people, truly insane people who say, no, you have to vote on the first Tuesday after the first Monday in October, in November, or you can't vote at all. And I think the Supreme Court is going to just give that the back of its hand Mm -hmm. so that states that want to make it easier for people to vote are going to be able to do that. Gotcha. And then one issue, I mean, you you mentioned this earlier, but one issue that is currently live is the Trump, the Trump campaign wants to like they are very fixated on the notion of an election day and they want to restrict the state's ability to count ballots that arrive after election day. They, in some cases, want to challenge postmark laws. Um how safe do you think, like if a state says that we want to have a rule that any ballot that arrives within three days of election day, we're going to count it. Do you think that that's safe? So here's the thing. I think if a state has already had already passed a law like that, mm-hmm. it's totally safe. That is California. I think the rule in California is if the ballot is postmarked by election day, it has 17 days to arrive. Gotcha. And that's, I think what the website says. And I think that's, perfectly safe as long as a state did it ahead of time. Where you get into difficulties are uh, with something called the Purcell principle, which is if the state changes these laws on the fly, then you can face trouble from the Supreme Court that says you really shouldn't be changing the rules in the middle of an election. But if, for example, a state had decided in 2019, had passed a statute that said, as long as your ballot, we're going to have no excuses, absentee voting. So any voter can get a ballot. And as long as that ballot is postmarked by election day, uh, it can arrive 17 days later. That would be perfectly fine. I think if a state passed a law that said, we are going to create a presumption that any ballot that arrives within three days of an election was cast by election night, regardless whether it has a postmark on it, because we recognize sometimes things don't get postmarked. That would almost certainly be okay as well. The difficulty is a lot of states didn't have laws like that, and they're trying to do this on the fly or a lower federal court is ordering it, and that that makes for difficulties with the with the Supreme Court. But could a state set up its election system that way? Absolutely. So so what if there's just an emer I mean like the pandemic a lot of people think is an emergency that requires sudden and you know sometimes late ad- adaptations. You know what if there's a hurricane that forces Miami to be evacuated 2 days before the election and Florida decides to change its law 1 day before the election to make sure that the people who are evacuated can still cast their vote. You know are, are states still allowed to do that? They are. Um, it's just complicated what they can do. A little bit of it is complicated for federal elections by the fact that the federal government sets the election day. That mm-hmm. is, there's a statute that says we use the first Tuesday after the first Monday. So a state, for example, I think could not change its the date on which it elects its senator and say, you know, this year we're going to elect them in December instead. But there's never been a case 
decided on exactly that issue. I mean, the irony is in New York, they were just municipal elections, but there was actually a primary election going on on 9-11 and they just re-ran it later. Huh. We don't have in place anything that talks about emergency. You know, what do you do in an emergency? What do you do if, you know, Rick Hassan wrote about this in his election uh, meltdown book. Lawrence Douglas wrote about this in his uh, Will He Go book. You know, what happens if just all of the electricity goes out in Detroit on election day, you know, and therefore none of the people who live in Detroit are able to vote? And then let's say Donald Trump wins in Michigan overall by 10,000 votes. What's well, clear if the people in Detroit had been able to vote, you know, they vote two to one, three to one Democratic, the result of the election would be different. But it's not clear what you do about that. These are just areas where you think there's a lot of uncertainty. You yeah. know, we're, we're at the mercy, mercy of courts that haven't told us what the answer is. That's correct. And so let me go ahead then and close with the question. This is the last question I'm asking everyone I interview. What is your personal plan to cast your ballot so that you can be confident that it will be counted? Well, I'm voting in uh, California. And starting the week of October 5th, the state is going to send us each a ballot. So when I get that ballot, I'm going to fill it out. And I I really love voting on election day. I love the, you know, the symbolism of standing in line with people just like yourself. So I'm going to return that ballot on election day to my local precinct. Pam Carlin, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks again to Pam for her expertise. I know that was a lot of information. So again, I want to highlight one really troubling thing that Pam said, which is the danger to the Voting Rights Act. What we've seen in a lot of states is that lawmakers will use race as a proxy in order to identify Democrats and disenfranchise voters. And so if the Voting Rights Act falls, there's a real danger that Democrats cease to be competitive in national elections. After the break, I'm going to talk with Mark Joseph Stern at Slate, and we're going to talk about some of the tactics that could be used to fight back against a Supreme Court if that court goes rogue against democracy. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash NAP. That's N-A-P-P. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. 
Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Welcome back. So my next interview is with Mark Joseph Stern. Uh, Mark is my rough counterpart at Slate. We've covered the Supreme Court together for many years. Uh, he's a very good friend of mine. Um, and I really enjoyed this interview. Mark is a very passionate, as you will hear, advocate of adding more seats to the Supreme Court in order to dilute the votes of the Republican justices who dominate the court right now. I want to say because I'm fairly coy in this interview, I spent a lot of time playing devil's advocate. If I were a member of Congress and there was a bill that would allow a President Biden to add seats to the Supreme Court, I would vote yes on it. I think that the Supreme Court we have now and that we're going to have if Amy Coney Barrett is confirmed is such a tremendous threat to our democracy that Congress has no choice. But and you'll hear this in this interview, the price of these tactics is very high. We are going to lose something very precious because of the moral legitimacy that the court has lost and that it will lose in the future no matter what happens. And so with that somewhat depressing intro, here's what I think is a very lively interview with Mark Joseph Stern. Mark Joseph Stern, welcome to the podcast. Hello, such a delight to be on. Yeah, it really is just a delightful time to be discussing the Supreme Court. There's there's nothing but love in the world right now. No, it just brings me so many good feelings. It's like flowers, puppies, candies, and the U.S. Supreme Court. They all go together. Yeah, no, rainbows and unicorns, lollipops and love. Everything is wonderful right now. So one of the things that's wonderful is we have the opportunity. I never thought we would have this opportunity to talk seriously about court packing. So just walk me through real quick. What is court packing? Uh, court packing is a term that I do not use <laughs> anymore. I prefer the term court expansion, Ooh. which is not a euphemism, but a more accurate description of what is on the table here. So... Let's just rewind a little bit to the Constitution being ratified. All right. The good folks who wrote and ratified it did not have a number in mind to set in stone for how many justices should sit on their Supreme Court, right? They said there's got to be a chief justice, but actually that's it. That's all that they laid out. So at first, the Supreme Court had six justices, right? That number has gone all the way up to 10, and we'll talk about why. It then came down to nine, and it's been at nine for quite a while. Okay, but nine is a number that was set by Congress through statute, right? Right. Uh, it is not a constitutional imperative, and so when I talk about court expansion, I am talking about 
a reform to the U.S. Supreme Court to attempt to dilute the influence of uh, justices who were appointed either illegitimately or through extreme hardball tactics that threatened the legitimacy of the court by adding a certain number of seats, probably four, so that there are more liberal justices to balance out the conservatives and the court has been restored to the kind of balance where it has sat for quite some time and where it has drawn a lot of support from the American people. I mean, you and I both know that the court has actually been quite conservative for a while, but most Americans seem to think that a a court that hands a few victories to liberals and a few victories to conservatives deserves our respect and, and is legitimate. I do not know that Americans will still believe that's true if there is a six-justice conservative majority out of nine, right? And uh, many of those justices were put there by presidents who lost the popular vote. And so I think that court expansion is not just about saving the court from Republicans, but really kind of saving the court from itself and restoring its proper role in our constitutional democracy. There's my elevator pitch. All right. So so make the case for me specifically why now is the right moment. You know, you know, the nine justice threshold has been in place since I believe the Grant administration. Yes. And like there's been a lot of political twists and turns since that. And we have had a more conservative court. You know, if you look at the court from like the early 20th century when it was striking down minimum wage laws and when it was, you know, eviscerating the right to unionize, that is probably more conservative than we would get even if Amy Coney Barrett is confirmed. So why now? What makes this moment the moment where we need more than nine? So a couple of things. First of all, even at its worst, in the Lochner era in the 1920s and and 30s, the Supreme Court had nine justices who were appointed legitimately through the normal political processes that both parties had agreed to. And, you know, like I mentioned, the Constitution doesn't say how many justices have to sit on the Supreme Court. The Constitution doesn't say a whole lot about the Supreme Court. It kind of leaves the very idea of judicial review for us to deduce from the text, right? The Constitution doesn't say the Supreme Court gets to strike down laws. Um, And the Constitution also does not really spell out the process by which justices are appointed. So for a very, very long time, the rule was, you know, the president gets to nominate somebody and the Senate takes a vote. And sometimes the Senate says no, but for the most part, the Senate says yes and uh, respects the president's wish and his choice and says, okay, this nominee can go through. The point is the Senate takes action, okay? In 2016, Mitch McConnell decided to completely rewrite these rules. Okay, so Justice Scalia dies in February. There are there's still nearly a year left right. in Obama's term. Okay, but Mitch McConnell says no president can appoint a Supreme Court justice in an election year. We must let the American people decide who should replace Scalia. That was that was what he said. Okay, you can go run the tapes, read the transcripts. So of course, Obama leaves office. Trump comes in. Trump picks Gorsuch, who is extremely conservative, certainly much more conservative than Merrick Garland, who Obama had nominated and who was a kind of centrist, moderate pick, right? The Senate refuses to confirm Garland. The Senate refuses to consider Garland. The Senate says Merrick Garland is an illegitimate nominee. You know, he doesn't even cross our radars because we think that the American people should decide who will pick the next justice. Okay, so Merrick Garland gets blocked. Trump comes in. Trump puts Gorsuch on the court. Trump puts Kavanaugh on the court. 
And then guess what happens in September of 2020? Justice Ginsburg dies. Trump is in a position to either replace her or let the American people decide. And Trump decides he wants to replace her. Why? Well, it's an election year. Not only is it an election year, people are already voting. Like, as you and I are speaking, thousands of people are casting their ballots in the 2020 presidential election. But Mitch McConnell says, we're not going to let the American people decide on this one. We're going to ram through an arch-conservative nominee who will, in this nominee's own words, by the way, shift the balance of power of the court, right, toward conservatives and really change American constitutional law for at least a generation. So that's the background. That's sort of how we got here. And the reason why I think now is the time is because if you look at what Republicans said when Scalia died and you look at what they said when Ginsburg died, they're rule here mm-hmm. comes down to this. The party in power gets to do whatever it wants to capture the Supreme Court within constitutional limits. Okay. The party in power gets to play hardball politics with the court. And as long as the constitution is not expressly violated, it's all fair game. And so my response to your your original question, why now, is because Republicans have opened the door for it and, in fact, made the case for it in so many words by saying after Ginsburg's death, if we have the votes, we are going to do this. I think the only proportional response that Democrats can possibly muster is to say, well, if we have the votes, we're going to do this too. And for them... That means expanding the court to add seats, a totally constitutional maneuver to try to counter what Republicans have done to corrupt the institution. So my my colleague Ezra Klein has talked a lot about this, how it's bizarre that for many, many years, justices were confirmed easily. Well, mm-hmm. like, I mean, these are hugely consequential votes. They are, you know, in many cases, because the justices can serve for so long, the single most consequential thing that a president does. Chances are the most significant thing that Donald Trump will do in his entire presidency is the three people that he put on the Supreme Court. So given that the stakes have always been this high, why is it just now? that the norms favoring easy confirmation have broken down. I mean, it seems like someone should have figured out sooner that, this, <laughs> that, that like, it's really important to block the other party's Supreme Court justices. Well, you know, I think, so there's a couple reasons. First, and this is such a boring poli-sci answer, but like there's We, there's we party love realign- boring poli-sci <laughs> answers here. So, so part of it is party realignment. Very simple, right? It, it has not always been the case that, If you're a Democrat, a Republican is going to put somebody on the court who's totally anathema to everything you believe in. Earl Warren and William Brennan, the two great liberal lions of the Supreme Court, appointed by a Republican president, right? And even going more recently, like David Souter, George H.W. Bush's nominee, became like a liberal. And, you know... (laughs) I'm sure that some Republicans regretted that. A lot of conservatives have sort of made their rallying cry like no more suitors. But for the Republican Party at the time in the early 90s, like there were pro-choice people in that party. There were like pro-LGBT people in that party. Not many of them, but you did not have this extreme partisan division uh, that we have today until fairly recently. Okay, so I think that's a big, that's got to play a big role. I think the other part of it is that 
this has always been a possibility. It's always been possible to play hardball with the courts. And look, let, let's let's acknowledge that it has happened in the past. So like John Tyler's nominees were essentially voted down over and over again because, you know, the Senate was like, we don't even think you're the the real president, dude. Like, His you're not going to cut your justices. Right? <laughs> okay, so like, it's always been a possibility, but the modern process has focused on both civility and a kind of underlying mutual understanding that the president has this authority and that the Senate should generally respect that authority unless there's a really big glaring reason not to. I mean, advising consent is not necessarily the strongest language that 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 we have in the Constitution when we're talking about somebody's duty, right? Like, advising consent for a long time, and even in the early days when the people who wrote the Constitution were in Congress, they were saying, okay, yeah, this guy sounds fine, let's just do it. It was really Mitch McConnell in modern times who understood that there was no backstop if the Senate decided it simply was not going to confirm a justice or even consider a justice. It was Mitch McConnell who realized we can take this way farther than anybody ever has before because the parties are so divided uh, and because, you know, the Senate is so malapportioned and he was guaranteed this majority, basically. We can just sort of manipulate the court as we see fit. That is what McConnell has done. That is what he did by blocking Garland. That is what he will do by pushing on Barrett. And I I think that we can kind of blame him for this uh, longtime mutual respect and understanding between the branches for just totally collapsing and leaving us with nothing more than hardball between the president and the Senate majority leader. So one thing I find bizarre about this whole debate over what to do with the courts, like, let's say that you're someone who's mostly happy with what the Supreme Court has done, but you disagree with Citizens United. Mm -hmm. Like the one thing that you can't do is lobby Congress to pass a targeted bill that just overrules Citizens United, but leaves everything in place like, you know, a narrow, moderate, targeted solution is completely off the table because we all agree that the Supreme Court has the final word on what the Constitution says. But if you want to add 30 justices to the Supreme (laughs) Court and turn it into your own partisan playground like that's constitutional. And so I guess what I'm searching for here is are there more moderate solutions? You know, is there something that can be done short of court packing to rein in the power of this body without necessarily pulling the trigger on the most radical solution? So let I will absolutely answer your question, but let me just say briefly, the insight that you just mentioned that like Congress can't overturn Citizens United, but Congress can add 80,000 seats to the court and put your mom on there. Um, That is something Mitch McConnell has understood for a very long time. And his entire playbook here has been to not force Congress and Republicans to take unpopular votes on unpopular policies, right? Mitch McConnell is not going to be able to repeal the the federal background checks rule. Mitch McConnell is not going to be able to, on his own, kill the Affordable Care Act, right? His, His play is to appoint justices and judges who will do that dirty work for the GOP. Having said that, there are other technocratic fixes for the Supreme Court. And I think that none of them on their own would work. 
but I think they are worth considering and some of them are really worth pursuing. So one example is term limits, right? Um, Obviously, we need term limits. I mean, what rational person could really defend the current system where the entire United States Constitution and all of our laws and our democracy turn on the life or death of an 87-year-old woman and the just the arbitrary randomness of pancreatic cancer? It's ridiculous. It's bad. It was bad when Scalia died on the court. It's bad. It was bad when Justice Ginsburg died on the court. Like, No other country does this, and for a very good reason. There should be 18-year term limits. Every president should be able to appoint two justices. Okay, that like that seems very obvious. I think that would help because it would make the court at least reflect the uh, democratic will a little bit more than it does today because it means, for instance, Barack Obama would have gotten four justices instead of only two. And And Donald Trump would have only gotten two. Would have only gotten two, right? Term limits don't get people excited. What get people are excited are these sort of like bong rip dorm room, let's talk about how courts should function solutions like Pete's. Okay, Pete Buttigieg has this idea um, that you have like a rotating cast of Supreme Court members where you have like five Democrats and five Republicans and then five independents. And I actually don't know what an independent judge looks like. Maybe you do. Maybe no one does. Maybe they don't exist. So so if I can cut in, like my my understanding is that his proposal is that Democrats get five seats, Republicans get five seats, and then there are five more seats that are picked by the other 10. That's right. That's right. Yeah, exactly. And And they're supposed to pick like independent-minded ones. They're supposed to pick like centristy judges. Right. At least that, that, was, that was the glean that I got from it. I think the problem with that is that it is unconstitutional, almost certainly, because uh, even though there's not a whole lot about the Supreme Court in Article 3, it does say that there's only one person who gets to appoint justices, and that person is the President of the United States. It does not say that Supreme Court justices get to appoint other justices. Leaving that aside... I do not really know how letting five Democrats and five Republicans pick five more judges fixes anything, because it seems to me like it's just going to turn all of the existing justices against each other and maybe deadlock the court indefinitely. What do you think of Pete's proposal? I'm curious. Yeah, I I mean, I had a different criticism when I wrote about it, which is that I just think that court packing is such a nuclear bomb to drop into your politics that if you're going to drop it, you better win. Like, like, I mean, if, if Democrats were to invoke court packing and then produce a centrist court, what's going to happen is that Republicans are eventually going to win an election and then they're going to do court packing again and produce the most partisan Republican court that you can imagine. So, like, I I feel like, you know, if a party is going to, you know, and I don't think that what we want is a world where Democrats always win forever and ever. Amen. But I do think that, broadly speaking, that what the Democratic Party needs to do right now is build a nation that is permanently more democratic than the one that we have right now. Small D democratic. Exactly. Where Republicans have to compete in free and fair elections, where if Republicans win, they get four years to govern and not 40 years to govern because of, of the Supreme Court. And I don't think that just trying to take the politics out of the Supreme Court is going to achieve that goal. Yeah. So so let me just ask you, like you you have two possible futures. Future one, it's 
Court expansion, mm-hmm. Democrats add four seats. Future two, it's Pete's plan. Okay, five, 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 whatever. Like, which future do you prefer? Between those two, I think if you're going to pull the trigger on court packing, you have to go all in. And like I said, right. like, I, I don't want to see the Democratic Party seize control of the court and then declare Republicans unconstitutional or something like that. Right. But right. like, I think the fundamental problem with our nation, that's part of the reason I'm doing this podcast is that our elections are not producing democratic outcomes anymore. And the goal of the large D democratic party should be to turn us into a small D democratic nation where they don't necessarily win all the time, but they can compete on an even playing field. Okay. So, so I, I agree completely on that point. um, You know, I think it's interesting. You want a more small D democratic nation, But you and I and most people in our field still just assume that it is absolutely and obviously proper for some kind of high tribunal in Washington, D.C. to be the ultimate arbiter of the Constitution for everybody else and to be able to override all of the Democratic branches when they have the votes to do so. And I just think we should note whether or not, you know, that's a, a, a correct assumption. Like, that's not how it works in most other countries. Okay, our our Supreme Court is way more powerful than any other country's Supreme Court. And most other countries leave constitutional decision-making to the democratically elected branches because they do not believe that the Constitution should be totally insulated from popular will. And they believe that the people we elect to govern the nation should be the ones to govern the nation rather than nine self-proclaimed wizards in robes. So explain to me then what our country looks like in a world where we have a Supreme Court that has less power. I mean, does Congress strip the court of some of its jurisdiction? Like what actual tools, if any, or does it require a constitutional amendment can be brought to bear so that maybe we still have a nine justice court and maybe it's still a six to three Republican court, but that court wields significantly less power than it does right now? So, I mean, I think jurisdiction stripping is is the obvious answer, right? The Constitution does say, like, Congress can basically take away the Supreme Court's authority to pass judgment on certain laws. Um, that doesn't do much for the states if the states want to go their own way. Um, I think if, say, the Supreme Court rules that it is illegal not to own a gun and that everyone over the age of 12 has to purchase an AR-15, the Governor of California signs an executive order that says, no, we're not going to abide by this decision. And then the ball's in the Supreme Court's court to decide how they're going to enforce their ruling. And, you know, the Supreme Court has a very professional police force of how many people? 200 or so? I do enough not to keep think, us from bringing cell phones into the courtroom. Enough to keep us from bringing cell phones into the courtroom. Probably not enough to overtake the state of California and, you know, enforce its rulings. Um, I do think that the president could try to send in federal marshals. You could get into, like, the Little Rock problem. Right. But uh, it does seem to me like if other countries have figured out how to... Uh, balance the Supreme Court's power with the uh, democratically elected branches' powers, that we can probably do it too. I mean, Canada, right, every Canadian province has, it's called a notwithstanding clause. Every Canadian province can just tell the Supreme Court of Canada that it's not going to abide by its decisions, and they do it. Like, they do this fairly frequently. They say, hey, nice ruling you got there, guys, but we're not going to follow it because we think you're wrong. And I think that we believe Canada is still a democracy, 
So, I mean, there's a word for this thing that you're describing California doing. The, the word is interposition. And right. like, it's not a word that has a happy history. Like, you know, <laughs> Martin Luther King specifically called out Southern states for using interposition in uh, in the eye of a dream speech. But I mean, you can imagine a world and like, I, I you know, I'm open to the possibility that a world where every state has the power to engage in interposition and say, like, we're just not going to follow this court decision. I'm open to the argument that that's better than a world where Amy Coney Barrett rules, right. I guess. I th- but I want to like make sure that we're clear on what the consequences of that are, like because it wouldn't just mean that the Supreme Court could say that everyone gets guns and California can say no. It would mean that Alabama could say, no, we're not going to have marriage equality. Right. It would mean that Texas could say, no, we're not going to have Roe v. Wade. And again, right. maybe that's better than a world where Amy Coney Barrett is just in charge. But is it worth paying the price? I think it depends on how far the Supreme Court goes. And um, I think it's all speculative right now, but I think it quite possibly could be better because, and, and maybe I'm being a little melodramatic here, but I don't think so. The Supreme Court that you and I and the nation have known since the 1950s is over forever. Okay, it is gone. There is no more court that commands popular respect, that is treated as automatically authoritative by the democratic branches, that it sits above politics, at least in the popular mind, and that kind of sometimes splits the baby in a way that keeps democracy alive. I'm not going to go to bat for some of Sandra Day O'Connor's kind of mealy mouth decisions, but for a very long time, we have had a median vote on the court that really does strive to give both sides enough victories to keep the dream alive of a Supreme Court that is above politics. And that is gone forever. It is over. And the sooner we bury that idea, the quicker we can move on to figuring out whether it's worth interposition, you know, embracing interposition or departmentalism, which is where, say, the president gets to make his own decisions about what the Constitution means, right? Congress gets to make its own decisions. So I'm mindful of our time, but I do have two questions that I want to ask. Um, one is I want to dig into this notion of departmentalism. So, you know, Alexander Hamilton famously said that the judiciary depends on the executive to enforce its orders. And like, generally, that's true. Like most most court orders, people voluntarily comply with them. But if you choose not to, the consequences that the U.S. Marshals are sent after you. Right. So you can imagine a world where President Biden says, I'm not going to allow the U.S. Marshals to enforce a particular court decision. Mm-hmm. And I guess the question is, what is the threshold for which he should use that power? Like if the court strikes down Obamacare, should he use that power? If they try to raid the Treasury of Unions, should, should, should you know, which is a case that's there's currently a cert petition that would do just that. Um, You, you know, at, at what point? Does, if at all, does it become justifiable for a Democratic president to say, you know what, court, that's a nice decision, but the U.S. Marshals aren't going to enforce it? So I think that the Affordable Care Act decision, if it comes out the wrong way, that is at least that's got to be on the other side of that threshold. Right. Because we are basically talking about two possibilities. Mm-hmm. One possibility is that a bunch of people getting chemotherapy treatment, a bunch of kids with rare diseases in the hospital, a bunch of mothers with newborns, a bunch of poor people who survive only because of uh, subsidized pharmaceuticals, et cetera. All of those people basically die. Okay, they're dead. They're, they're told you no longer have health insurance. You cannot afford 
this $2 million treatment. You do not get protections because of your pre-existing conditions. And we are sending you home to die. That's option one. Option two is that Congress passes some kind of resolution, I think, and Joe Biden signs it that says this decision is illegitimate and we are not going to follow it. And all of those people get to live. I think I like the second option. And I think that that's the kind of careful, deliberative, democratic decision-making that we should really have more of in this country. And that Congress and the president could probably work through without completely obliterating their own legitimacy or popular support. Um, I don't know that Joe Biden should take it upon his own shoulders to decide what he will or will not enforce. I do think he should consult with Congress about this. But if the Supreme Court accuses Congress of secretly repealing the Affordable Care Act and then throws in a footnote that says, by the way, the federal government has no power to regulate health care anyway, I think that's the time for Congress and Joe Biden to say judicial supremacy that is so 2019. All right. Well, let me go ahead and close with the question that I'm using to end all these interviews. What is your personal plan for how you're going to cast your vote to ensure that it will be counted? Great question. So I live in Washington, D.C., where we will all be mailed ballots. And I intend to fill out my ballot. I intend to return it by mail because I believe in our ability to do that. And then I intend to email or call the elections office and confirm that they have received it because I want to hear a real life person tell me that my ballot is in their hands. And uh, everybody else can do that too. And most states also have uh, trackers online where you can go and make sure that your ballot has been received and has been accepted. I think everybody should do that if they can, because it's not just about filling out the ballot, right? It's about making sure it actually gets tallied. Great. Well, thank you so much, Mark. This has been a lot of fun. Always a pleasure. Let's 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 figure out better euphemisms for what we're talking about. <laughs> and 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 next time we'll sound like we are just auditioning for a joint professorship somewhere. Oh, sure, sure. It, it's now the Roosevelt option. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks again, Mark. Bye bye. Thanks again for joining us. Uh, this has been our last episode here at By the People, so I hope you enjoyed it. My name is Ian Milheiser, and you can find me on Twitter at, at iMilheiser. The show was produced by Jackson Bierfeld. It was edited by Albert Ventura. Our executive producer is Liz Nelson. And this show is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Visit vox.com slash podcast to hear more of our shows. Support for this show comes from Vanta. Dealing with loads of spreadsheets, juggling different tools, and having to do manual security checks, it can be a headache to keep up with today's compliance and security programs. Vanta is the trust management platform that wants to simplify things and bring all your trust-building efforts under one roof, making growth smoother for your whole organization. Vanta lets you automate up to 90% of compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more strengthen security posture, and reduce third-party risk. Get $1,000 off Vanta when you go to vanta.com slash vox. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash vox for $1,000 off Vanta.